You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. If I can get everyone's attention, we're going to get started. Uh, I'm Pete Betke. I'm the uh, professor of economics and philosophy here at George Mason University and the director of the F.A. Hayek program for advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics. Thank you very much for coming. Today is our uh, end of the year, end of the semester uh, seminar that we have on philosophy, politics, and economics um, that meets every uh, uh, Thursday at this time. Um, and in between that, we have these special book panels to highlight. We are, and this economics department has always been a book culture. Um, Steve and I share the same doctoral father, to use the German on that, and uh, he, one of his conditions for writing your doctoral dissertation with him was that you wrote a book, um, not that you published three essays in search of a staple, which has become the norm now. And uh, but Don made us all write books, and one of the things that we that I have in the Lavoie room is actually the dissertation versions and then the published book versions uh, of that. And Steve was one of those, and his dissertation, uh, which was on uh, the evolution of free banking uh, and monetary theory, ended up by becoming a book within short order after that. Um, and that's how we, as, as Lavoie students, launched our careers uh, was as book writers. But this department is unique in economics departments and always uh, celebrating books and uh, looking at books as the way in which people make um, their uh, contributions. So today we're here to celebrate Steve's most recent book, um, Hayek's Modern Family and Classical Liberalism. And uh, Steve uh, um, is currently the Charles Dana Professor of Economics at St. Lawrence University. And he is spending this year at the, the Schottner Center, Institute for Entrepreneurship and Free Enterprise. But uh, Steve has, has a long uh, relationship with uh, George Mason. As I said, he was a graduate of the Center for the Study of Market Processes, which is the older institution from which the Mercatus Center has, has uh, risen. He has spent his career at St. Lawrence University as the author of three books, including this most recent. Uh, one which is on monetary evolution, free banking, economic order, his first book, and then micro foundations of macroeconomics, micro foundations and macroeconomics, an Austrian perspective, which um, became a sort of a very important book uh, for the development of monetary uh, disequilibrium theory and the Austrian theory of the trade cycle and whatnot. Uh, Steve has also a very active public intellectual life. A uh, great teacher. He's long been involved with Institute for Humane Studies. Um, his uh, Institute for Humane Studies Learned Liberty video on the wage gap um, has over a million views on YouTube and whatnot. So he's the Justin Bieber of Austrian economics. Um, still searching to, to monetize that. And, uh, and, and also relevant for this, Steve and I are relative classmates. I was just a year ahead of him in graduate school. And uh, Dave Prochicko and I uh, were together in the class above Steve. And when Steve came here, we decided we would go down to his office and make fun of the new kid. And when, he, when we went into the office, he had a, the don't tread on me flag. And we decided, he's not all that bad. <laughs> and so uh, he became our confidant and whatnot. And so we're today 
uh, very proud to call Steve an alumni and also a fellow in our program and to celebrate this achievement of his in this book. Um, the way that we'll proceed today is we'll start with uh, commentary on Steve describing the project and then we will hear from my colleagues Jamie Lemke um, who is a senior fellow in the Hayek program and uh, she's also uh, um, sort of runs our PhD fellowship program at the moment and uh, Jamie herself is an expert on the rise of women's rights and economic history and political economy of, of that. And then I'll hear from our uh, my other uh, colleague, uh, Roberta Hertzberg, Bobby Hertzberg, um, just joined us this last uh, uh, September um, uh, from where she moved from the um, John Templeton Foundation. But before that, she was a professor um, and chair um, out at Utah State University for many years. And before that, she was at Indiana University where she worked with uh, Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom um, as a faculty member at the workshop there. And uh, so Bobby also is an expert in political economy as well as in health and, and human services and the political economy of that. And so that's how they will go and then we'll come back and then we'll open it up for everyone. So without any further bad jokes from me, I turn it over to the great and wonderful Steve Horowitz. Thank you, Pete, and, and thank you all for coming this afternoon. Um, it is always a pleasure to be back here. It's a pleasure to be back here uh, to talk about this book. And it's a pleasure to be back here to see what Pete and the crew here has built. This is uh, really amazing. I, this is the first sort of real length of time I've been here all week and got to spend around here and see what what's going on and how they've organized this place, and it is amazing. Um, you know, we think back to 30 years ago when we were, what, in a broom closet with two desks, basically, trying to, uh, trying to make our way through a PhD program, and this is just, this is fantastic. So what I want to do uh, in the 20 minutes or so I have at my disposal uh, is tell you a little bit about the background of the book, and then I'm going to set up what I think is the book's main, sort of the, the problem that, that, that frames the book, and then I'll do my best to kind of summarize it more or less chapter by chapter. And at the end, I'm going to make two comments at the end about what I think the two weaknesses of the book are. Um, I will keep those to one sentence each to not hopefully stomp on my commenters who may well be uh, talking about the same thing. So one of the interesting things about this book is that this book grew out of my teaching uh, at St. Lawrence. And at liberal arts colleges like St. Lawrence, we often talk about the teacher-scholar. And we usually think about that in terms of how one scholarship you know, influences the classroom and that to be a good teacher you need to be someone who's producing knowledge. And I think, I certainly think that's true, but I also think it runs the other way. I think that one can create scholarship out of one's teaching. Um, taking on a course and teaching it as a way for you as a scholar to learn this material and then to turn loose, I'm fortunate to have small classes there, you know, 15 seniors as research assistants every year in a course on the Great Depression, say, right, or, or uh, to have uh, students in a first-year seminar course on the family researching topics that I don't know much about, right? You, you wind up learning a great deal. And so this book grew out of teaching in our first-year seminar program. Um, and in particular, I owe an enormous debt to my co uh, longtime teaching partner and colleague in psychology, Kathy Crosby, who 
who, my work with her and co-teaching that course, this book simply wouldn't exist were it not for her contributions and our work together. But I've taught uh, also another seminar on family and the public policy. I've taught economics of gender and the family. And even my American economic history course, I think, contribute to this in all kinds of ways. So I think as, as I think about this book, this is sort of, I taught this stuff and then I decided I got to write something about this. And I think my next project will be very similar from another course I've taught a number of times. So the other aspect of this, the other background is Hayek, of course, says very little about the family in his thousands and thousands of pages. Um, other than a few hints here and there about its importance, perhaps especially as a transmitter of culture and as a bulwark against uh, both the state and to some degree the market, he doesn't say much about what family does. He says it's important, but he doesn't tell us much about, about what it does. And so for me, part of this project was to ask the question, what what could Hayek have said? What would Hayek say? What would a Hayekian say about the family? And I think the other piece of the puzzle, and one very close to my heart and certainly Mercatus's heart, is the ways in which in recent years, finally, classical liberalism and classical liberal scholars are talking about civil society, are talking about what we might call the third space, not the market, not the state. For under, understandable reasons, that was the focus of classical liberal scholarship for a long time. But we have things like charities and houses of worship and the family that occupy this other space. And I think we need to try to understand those institutions and what they do. Um, certainly in, in the collapse of nominally socialist countries, we've seen civil society and had to think about how civil society makes a comeback. But the Katrina project here at Mercatus is a really good example of how we might think about those things. And I see this book as a contribution to that literature, too, and sort of how might classical liberals think about that third space. So the problem that frames the book is what I like to call the Hayek's two sorts of worlds at once problem. Hayek says in The Fatal Conceit that we live in two sorts of worlds at once. We live in the microcosmos and the macrocosmos. I'm going to kind of fill in what I think he means by that. And he says the problem of modernity in many ways is that we're constantly moving between these, these two sorts of worlds. So we have to start by recognizing that we as human beings are creatures of our evolutionary past. And the development of our minds, the way we perceive and understand the world, uh, is, is a sort of residue of that evolutionary process. And the long evolutionary past of humans was a world that was largely one of small groups, kin-based groups, of altruism, of collectivism, and of groups that had unified ends, where groups agreed upon what their goals were and operated as more like one coherent unit. And I, I should note, I'm going to draw a kind of dichotomy here. And in reality, it's not a strict dichotomy. You can think of it as a kind of continuum. But for my analytical purposes, I want to focus on, on, the, on a more dichotomous story. That's our evolutionary past. That's how our brains and our minds work. That's how we have come to see the world and understand it. But we live in a commercial society, the great society, as Hayek and Popper called it. The society of modernity requires a very different orientation. We have to, as Hayek said, learn the discipline of following abstract rules of just, just conduct that we often don't fully understand, but we know work. And the world we actually live in, the world of the market, for example, is a world of diverse plans and purposes, of individualism in some sense of the term, and orientation more towards the self, at least to start with, and those who matter immediately to us. Hayek says in Individualism True and False that even as we talk about self-interest and as economics has talked about self-interest, it's always been not just about literally the self, but about the things that matter to us, including our family and our friends. But those come first, and that's the world of the market. In some other Hayekian language, he distinguishes between ends-connected groups or societies, such as 
smaller, more collectivist ones, and means-connected ones, like societies that are held together by obeying the rules of just conduct, modern societies. But, it, but the tricky part of this, of course, is that the means-connected world of the great society, that large spontaneous order, is composed of all kinds of ends-connected subunits, like the family, like firms, like houses of worship, like sports teams, whatever. We can go on and on. Hayek made the distinction between what he called organizations, or to the Greek term he used was taxis, as opposed to the order or the cosmos of the great society. And so the challenge here is we live in both of these worlds at once. We're constantly navigating between the more intimate worlds of our family and our friends and our workplace and the more anonymous world of the market uh, in which all of those intimate worlds interact. For Hayek, the problem here is that our moral instincts remain grounded in our evolutionary past. And what the great society demands of us learning to obey those abstract rules of just conduct runs counter to those instincts. We want, in some sense, to extend the morality of the family to the greater society, but it's just not possible. How much human utopian thinking has been about the brotherhood of man or, or using that family metaphor to think about society as a whole. But Hayek rightly argues, if humanity is to progress, we have to grow beyond the limits of the concrete and unified ends of, the, of our evolutionary past. Trade, markets, property rights, the rule of law are all required for human progress. We've seen that progress, of course, over the last several hundred or thousand years. So given that, what's the role of the family? One way to think about the family is it's a bridge between these two sorts of worlds. Part, if not a lot, of what, uh, what the family socialization role is in helping children to learn the rules of the great society, but also their obligations to those in intimate orders. When we teach children, we're constantly sort of talking about how do you treat your friends and family, but what are your obligations to strangers, right? And, and moving back and forth uh, between those two is, is the family becomes this kind of bridge, both as an institution, but also as a site of learning for children. And ideally, helping socializing children in this way helps them learn sort of which situations are which and which sorts of rules apply in which and how do we, how do we treat various people. And so the family sits on this border between the microcosmos and the macrocosmos. It sits on the border between biology and society, too. And so it is this very strange and interesting place where all of these forces come together. And so that's the framework or the background question that, that sort of uh, sets up what I try to do in the book. Um, I make use of another whole set of tools in the book. I'm going to rattle these off. Uh, when I've done other versions of this talk for different audiences, I've had to explain all this stuff. But I think with this audience, I can, I can, be a, be, can use some shorthand. So what else happens? What else am I using in here? Well, certainly the Hayekian knowledge problem is a big part of this, right? The question, any social, any social institution has to be understood in terms of how does it enable people to make use of knowledge and coordinate their behavior, right? Institutions are problem solvers. And what's the problem that the family solves? How does it solve it? One of the other distinctions I make in the book is, is making a distinction between the functions that families perform and the forms that families take. Right? We can talk about what families do, their function, and we can talk about what families look like, their structure, their form. Okay? And oftentimes we run those two together. You know, I, I've been teaching this stuff for a long time, and if you want to start a good class discussion, right, just ask a class, what's a normal family? Okay. And what's interesting about the ensuing discussion is, is that they will run together function and form questions. Well, a normal family has two kids. 
normal family, people love each other. Well, wait a second, right? One's descriptive, one's about what families do. And I think we have to untangle those, and I think it's a Hayekian task to untangle those and understand, right, that, that the form that institutions take is going to be related to the functions that they perform. And as functions change, we would expect the form institutions take to change. And certainly the history of the family is a history of, I would argue, changing form mostly, though not solely, in regard to as a result of changing functions. And part of my argument is those changing functions are significantly a result of classical liberalism and particularly the wealth and, and, and sort of changes in economic structure that capitalism brought forth. I also make use, of course, of the idea of order without design and the importance of social cooperation, uh, things that are, again, very familiar to this group. I do make a little bit of use of evolutionary psychology. Um, and I, the short version of that is biology matters, but it's not fate. Uh, evolution can help us explain things, but it doesn't justify them. And I will note that there's not a lot of original historical research in this book. I'm, I'm, the historical sections of this book, what I'm mostly doing is taking kind of the literature on the family that's out there and trying to read it through a new set of lenses. So what, what, what does this book look like other than having the awesome black and yellow colors? <laughs> and when the design crew showed me this. They gave me two, two covers to look at. I didn't even look at what, what the fonts are. The black and yellow? Got it. <laughs> so, uh, so how's the book? How is the book organized? It's divided into three main sections. Uh, the first one is uh, a kind of history of the family uh, called Capitalism and the Creation of the Modern Family. There's a second section that looks at the sort of current, the 21st century family. And there's a last section with a couple of chapters that are classical liberalism and family policy. So let me, let me try to tell the historical story and then say a little bit about the other parts as well. Uh, the historical story argues per, sort of simply, right, that the advent of capitalism was a major, though not the only cause, of the emergence of the modern family. What do we mean by the modern family? We mean marriage for love, the sort of private nuclear family. We mean the sheltered childhood, this idea that we keep children away from the adult world, away from the workforce, away from adult responsibilities. We shelter them, whether it's in school or in the home, right? That childhood and, and now adolescence and now post-adolescence, apparently well into the 20s, um, become this period in which, I'm looking at Pete thinking, could he be longer than that with yours? <laughs> um, that, that there's this long, we're even now, there's this long period in which we, sh we you know, children are sheltered, right? And we, 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 and they, either of their own choice or by our choice, right, keep them uh, away from the uh, responsibilities of the adult world. And finally, of course, the equality of women, uh, both women's uh, economic rights, but also their, their uh, ability to achieve uh, economic, uh, their economic independence. And divorce becomes an important part of this, too. The ability to exit marriages uh, is an important part of the modern family. What brings us about... I argue that the spread of wage labor and the increasing wealth that capitalism brought transformed the family from a site of production to a site of consumption. Spouses move from, in the words of the family scholar, the family Stephanie Kuntz, from yoke mates to soul mates. Right? Work became less important to why people got married and why families were formed, and love became more important. Parents had the resources and time to afford to shelter and educate their kids, especially because one of the things we know that goes with economic development is falling family size. People have fewer kids when they get wealthier, right? Um, we could talk some more about that, too, because there's some interesting things happening with that now, I think. Uh, and so the, the, the parents have fewer kids. They have more resources. 
uh, they, can, they can do more to invest in their kids in the way we think about traditional human capital story. The demand for female labor and the increasing human capital of women, uh, as well as the importance of love within marriage, uh, gave women more leverage within marriages and also enabled women to have an increasing claim on the public sphere into the late 19th and early 20th century. Put simply, capitalism humanized the family. If you want to think in McCloskeyan terms, capitalism helped the family transform from being based on prudence to being based on love. Right? We, it's not, humans have always loved one another, but our ability to indulge love as the reason we marry has become easier and easier as we had to be less concerned with the material resources that marriage, uh, re, that marriage of, of which marriage was, was a part, that marriage made possible. As we think about the 20th century, the 20th century was the century of women in the labor force and the transformation of women's work from being jobs to being careers. And that transformation has a number of continued effects on the family. I argue in the book that, that uh, among the factors that helped make that possible for women, again, was the, the wealth created by capitalism, the demand for labor that pulled more and more women into the labor market. And we can't have that conversation, I think, without also talking about the pill and the role of the pill enabling women to control their fertility, uh, to have their own control over their fertility for really the first time in human history. All of those things together, right, um, make it possible for women to, to join the labor force. And it's also important to remember, right, that it's not as if women, you know, the 20th century was not women didn't work, women didn't work, and suddenly the 60s come along, right, women start working. Okay, the story is a much more gradual one. And one of the points I like to make when I do this talk for students is we have this vision of the 1950s family from Leave it to Beaver, right? And there's, there's Barbara Billingsley, right, with her pearls at home, right, and everything. And we think, oh, well, that's how all these women were in the 1950s. Barbara Billingsley and all those other TV moms, they were working mothers, right? Who was taking care of their kids? Well, they were busy making TV shows. Right? So it wasn't as if women didn't work in the 1950s. They did, right? And we certainly now have... Um, Oh, I'm just blank, blank, totally blanked on the show. Yeah, Mad Men, right? Mad Men, we know women were working. It's just not the best place to work often for women, but we know that women were working. The last point I'll make about the history is we can see the emergence of homosexuality as an identity through this lens as well. Um, as the heterosexual family and children were less necessary to survival and the growth of large and anonymous cities made living one's life as a gay or lesbian person increasingly possible, right? That, that became an identity that people could attach to. And same-sex marriage, I argue, is the culmination of these trends. The real revolution in marriage was marriage for love uh, and the separation of marriage, sex, and reproduction. Once you do those things, and those are things that wealth and, 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 uh, and, and wage labor made possible, um, same-sex marriage is a natural outcome of that, and, and there's probably no putting that toothpaste uh, back, back in the tube. That's the historical section. The, the middle section on the current family includes a chapter. Some of you may know the paper I wrote with Peter Lewin a number of years ago. That was a kind of Austrian analysis of marriage and divorce, where we look at the role. If we, if we approach human capital from an Austrian perspective and we focus on the uncertainty of plans, how does that affect the way in which we understand the, pe the choices people make, again, about marriage and divorce? Um, we, in that paper, we place particular emphasis on the importance of the structure of human capital within marriage, how investments in whether people are investing in human capital for work or human capital for the home, uh, how, how that plays out and how those investments have been affected by the uncertainty that we now see in things like gender roles and so on. What do people expect when they get married? How does that affect the investments that they take? And we look at investments in marriage-specific human capital and general human capital, particularly as they relate to childcare. Um, and we try to offer explanations of why we are seeing, uh, why we saw more divorce 
how the divisions, how the spoils from divorce are divided up, and why actually the divorce rate is beginning to come back down in many ways. And so our short version is what we're seeing are uh, fewer but better marriages. Market, sort of the signals within the marriage market have become less noisy, and people are able to form better expectations about who it is that they might be marrying. Uh, chapter 7 uh, takes a sort of look at, at, uh, at how families operate in a world where we are increasingly less impinged on by material scarcity, right? That economic growth has made, has made it easier. Think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs here. As, as economic growth has made it easier for us to address the lower order needs, families become more and more about things up Maslow's pyramid, more and more about, say, self-actualization. Uh, uh, and, the, and, and, and these kinds of things. And so we see families today, of course, right, where, where sort of doing those, you know, emotional satisfaction and these sorts of things are the key things people look for. And that's followed in Chapter 8 by a look at the debate over hyper-parenting, free-range kids, tiger moms, all that stuff. I also include Brian Kaplan's discussion of Brian Kaplan's book in there, too. And a couple things I'll say about that real quick, because I think there's some interesting questions in here for classical liberals. Risk-taking failure and unsupervised play among children are notably in decline as parents have increasingly decided that their children are precious resources about which, about whom, no risks should be taken and no hurt feelings and failures should ever be permitted. I refer to this as corner solution parenting, right? There's no trade-off, right? Zero risk. Some of this is due to a severe overestimation of the real risk to kids by parents from things like stranger abduction, that childhood as Brian points out has never been safer. But it's also due to parents being told that their own action as parents are crucial for the kids' psychological health and future well-being, right? If you don't potty train them right, they'll never get into Harvard, all right? That's the sort of story. And Brian's work, I think, has been particularly effective in sort of pushing back against, against this view. The result is that we are raising uh, a nation of wimps, in the words of Hera Estraf Morano. And I think the real concern for me, two concerns for me, one, I think we're raising often kids who are either too risk averse, that they don't want to take any risks at all, or are too risk loving in that they've been bailed out every time they've made a mistake. And I think those two extremes are both problematic if, for a liberal society. We want people to be willing to take risks. If we don't have risk takers, we don't have entrepreneurs, we don't have innovation, right, in all kinds of ways. But at the same time, we don't want people taking you know, ridiculous, irrational risks, thinking that they will be bailed out if they mess up. And so I think there is an interesting link here between parenting and the liberal society. How do we raise kids who are, to use the words of Liberty Fund, free and responsible human beings? And I think we, uh, it's an interesting question for classical liberals to think about because it's not, interestingly, necessarily a political question. It's a question about how, a cultural question about how we think about children. Um, I also think another way to think about this is there are too many parents who are living vicariously through their children and are interested in raising trophy kids as opposed to free and responsible human beings. And think about where that's come from and why. I think some of that is interestingly an, a sort of uh, unfortunate consequence of our wealth and, and of the kind of world that we live in. The last couple chapters, the last section, are on classical liberalism and family policy. Chapter 9, the, the next to last chapter, is a defense of parental rights from a libertarian perspective. It engages with some of the previous literature on the topic by libertarian writers, including Murray Rothbard's uh, famous, perhaps infamous, uh, description of children's or lack of rights, perhaps, uh, in the ethics of liberty. Uh, but it also explores things like the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on parental rights, trying to place this, this issue of what are the rights of parents within a larger story about the evolution of constitutional law. I'll just note here that the most, the key pieces of Supreme Court jurisprudence on parental rights are some of the most 
libertarian court decisions you'll ever read. Okay, Meyer versus Nebraska, uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, uh, in particular from 23 and 25, are foundations of the substantive due process type argument, which, by the way, we saw come back in Obergefell in the decision on, on same-sex marriage, and we saw in, in Lawrence versus Texas, and certainly fits in many ways with the kind of stuff that Randy Barnett and others are talking about. What's interesting about those cases, and I'm happy to talk about them more later, they were contract cases that had to do with the kinds of contracts parents could make with educational institutions about what those institutions taught their kids. So they're, if they're fantastic. Meyer and, Peer, and, and, and Pierce are definitely worth your time. They're short, because decisions used to be short back then. Um, so, so they're worth reading. The core of the argument I make is that while parents are often imperfect, no one else is in a better position to have the requisite knowledge and right incentives to work in the best interest of the child. Obviously, I draw on Hayekian arguments and themes about local knowledge to make this case. But importantly, I also make a comparative institutional argument here to note that the imperfection of parents is not an ipso facto case for government intervention because we have to take seriously the possibility of government failure. This is a standard public choice kind of argument, right? Child protective services in the foster care system are full of problems. And before we start yanking kids out of homes, we better be sure we're putting them somewhere better, right? Instead, what we should be thinking about is along the lines of, of, of the Ostroms. What are the other community resources that can be brought to bear to help parents who are struggling, especially in cases of neglect? Right? The bar for taking kids away from their parents, and not that their functional parents, not necessarily their biological ones, should be set high. And the burden of proof has to fall on the state to show that, that alternative arrangements are better. The last chapter of the book is a fairly straightforward uh, story of the contemporary evolution of marriage. Uh, and it concludes a, includes a defense of legalizing uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, and some brief thoughts, if I had time, I might have said more about, about what comes next, and I mean by that plural marriage, uh, polygamy, because I think that's going to be the next big front as we think about changes in the family. I'll note, finally, that uh, one of, I, I started this project writing on this in 2007. The page proofs for this arrived in my email. I got the PDF in my email on Friday, June 26, 2015. Anyone know why that date would be amusing? It was the date of the same-sex marriage Supreme Court decision. And, and the, for me, the, the, the lovely irony of that, I've been teaching that topic for 20 years back when, no, frankly, not many people were talking about it. And so to have this kind of culmination of that teaching with the books, page proofs, and that arrive at the same day. The problem, however, was I had to do some editing <laughs> on the page proofs. <laughs> Because I made, well, the, the good part was I had made, it wasn't really a prediction. I had a hope that the court would decide the case on both the right to marry, the right to marry, the sort of substantive due process grounds, and equal protection, right? And everyone's saying, oh, they'll never do the right to marry. It's going to be equal protection. Well, guess what? It was both, right? So yay me, at least I, I won't say I predicted, because it really wasn't a prediction. But I did have to sort of rewrite some of the tense in the book to make it seem, oh, they actually, they actually did that. So in the end, I think this book is a contribution to what one might call Hayekian or classical liberal social theory. It's rooted in Austrian economics, but it draws upon a broader range of analytical tools in trying to tell both a historical story about how liberal institutions transform the family and to understand the evolution and the functions of the family in the extended anonymous order of commercial society. It is, I think, just to start down that road, I think there's a, there's a ton of things that, that people could do, I hope, to, to, to sort of build on what I've done here. Um, I don't claim to say the last word, and I certainly don't have the last word on the many of the interesting policy questions. I find family policy questions to be some of the most complex and challenging that classical liberals face. So let me end with what I think the two weaknesses of the book are very, very short. 
One set of literature I did not grapple with, and I say so in the introduction. I forgot I said it. I was reading, rereading the introduction last night. Oh, I did say it. Is I don't grapple with the sort of uh, effects of welfare state policy on the family. And the reason, there's two reasons I don't. One is lots of people talked about it, and I didn't think I had anything more to say. But I was also actually just more interested in the longer run story, right? Even, uh, even if that policy is has this effect or that effect. What's the sort of long run, what we say, more secular story here? And I, I'm hopeful I saw heads nodding to my left when I said that. Um, and, and I don't mind that criticism at all. I think there's a whole bunch of interesting questions that we can raise about that. The second criticism is a related one. The weakness is a related one. Um, several reviewers have already said uh, Horowitz, Horowitz's glasses are too rose colored. Right? That there is an optimism about the family in this book that people feel is ignoring the real struggles that families face today. I, I think that's actually a fair criticism about the sort of tone of the book. And it was to some degree intentional on my part, precisely because I think so much that's been written about the family is Eeyore, right? So I wanted to be just a little bit of Tigger. Here, just a little bit of Tigger, right, to say that, yeah, there are problems, but there have been, over the longer picture, right, capitalism and classical liberalism have transformed the family in, um, and have liberated people, especially women and also children, in, in tremendously transformative ways. And, and the, the ways in which that change has enabled women to become full contributors to modern society has made us richer and happier and wealthier, even as it's, and, 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 and all kinds of things, even as it's come with, with certain, kinds of, certain kinds of costs. So I'll leave it there. I'm guessing that Jamie and Bobby will probably pick up just where I left off. Uh, I hope so anyway, because I think those are, the, those are the interesting questions to talk about. So thank you very much. Well, I think Steve about covered it, so thank you for inviting me here today. Um, so I actually do want to pick up on this, on one of the last themes that Steve raised, so it's a nice segue. Um, but first I want to say that in the introduction, Steve writes about Hayek's modern family as a first step designed to inspire others. So I want, I'm going to try to be inspired here. Hopefully that's a, a mark of respect and explore a little bit of the broader social significance of what happens in the family and also prod a bit at some of the tensions the book raises. Um, so I had a hard time deciding which of the reactions I've had to this book to share today. Uh, there are so many directions to go when you're talking about family, particularly such an expansive work as what Steve has compiled here. Um, I think the history I think the word prehistory is actually used as a section title, so I don't know if we can still call it prehistory after we've said something about it, but from a very long time ago, um, up until the 21st century, that's what we're covering. And since Steve is discussing the family as a socially embedded institution, there's an awful lot that comes adjacent to that. Family is so deeply embedded in all parts of life that it would be impossible to compile a full list of social norms and structures that affect or are affected by family. Family shapes and is shaped by political organizations, laws, and regulations that differentiate between people according to their role within a family or between different kinds of family structures. Family shapes and is shaped by technology and production and consumption patterns, including what we buy and what kinds of work wind up being rewarded. Family shapes and is shaped by social expectations and incentives, narrowly economic and otherwise, surrounding our choices about marriage, cohabitation, childbirth, and parenting. One of the points Steve's book drives home is that family serves a purpose. 
We form these close bonds with each other for a reason, for many reasons. People arrange the most fundamental parts of their lives in ways that they associate with living better and being happier and getting what they want out of their days. Family is one of the most important components of many people's life plans. Hayek had a few things to say about planning. The bulk of his life's work is a takedown of the idea that we can improve society through central planning. Hayek clearly articulates an important reason why central planning is so risky in the constitution of liberty. We are as little able to conceive what civilization will be or can be 500 or even 50 years hence as our medieval forefathers or even our grandparents were able to foresee our manner of life today. If we can't imagine the future, planning for it is a risky proposition. Now, if Steve and Hayek are right that family serves a social purpose and that society changes over time in unpredictable ways, then the idea of predicting the kinds of family arrangements that will be most useful in the future is deeply problematic. This is where experimentation and evolution come in. If we don't know which kinds of arrangements are going to work best, the argument goes, we should allow people to try a lot of different things. Sometimes it won't work out, but sometimes it will. The next step in the argument is more controversial, but it is at least possible that experimentation will lead to adaptation. People may learn from observation that some kinds of family arrangements are happier than others, or it may be that some types of family structures are so dysfunctional that they actually die out. If that happens, then we may be able to think of the family as progressing. Steve's account seems to suggest that this has taken place to some degree because he views the family as having changed in ways that make it better suited for the modern world. One of the recurring themes is that the easier it became for people to make a living on their own, the easier it became to marry for love. Companionate marriage emerged as an adaptation to a world of rising productivity. This was a change for the better because people could maintain the same standard of living while developing personal relationships that they presumably found more meaningful. But it is also possible to imagine less rosy adaptations having taken place. In the 1800s, most families lived on farms, and most women worked on those farms or in household production making textiles, soaps, candles, and foodstuffs for their families and for sale. Sometimes women would work for pay or for room and board at family businesses or in the households of wealthier families. Women's first significant opportunity to enter the wage labor force was in the 1820s, at the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Actually, I need to amend that statement a little bit. It was single women's first opportunity to enter the wage labor force that took place in the 1820s, but not married women, for a variety of reasons. Women who did work usually quit when they married. In the 19th century, if someone had to stay home, it almost always made the most economic sense for that person to be the woman. It's hard to care for small children from a factory floor, and it was also hard to imagine making it without children to contribute and to care for you in your old age. Men had more options for wage work, and they earned significantly higher wages. Beginning in about the 1880s, married women's exclusion from wage work was exacerbated by union restrictions on women and trades and state laws that restricted how long, for how much, and in which jobs women could work. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, many companies and school boards enacted policies that explicitly barred the employment of married women. Joan Holloway worked, but Betty Draper stayed at home. The exception was wartime, when married women's work was viewed more favorably, 
especially if they gave up their jobs when the men came home. Otherwise, married women were discouraged from working for wages for roughly the first 150 years of the Industrial Revolution, for most of American history. What kind of adaptation in the family and in expectations about the nature of family relationships should we expect this to bring about? This is a question, not an answer. But imagine you grew up in a home where dad went to work while mom stayed home because there wasn't really an alternative. Imagine entering a marriage where the understanding that the husband will be the breadwinner is so clearly understood that it doesn't even need to be discussed. Imagine working in the same career for 40, 50, 60 years without ever having a female boss and maybe not even a female peer. This isn't really such a wild scenario. It's seriously oversimplified, but not so different than the world your parents or grandparents might have grown up in. Maybe not even so different than the world you grew up in. Steve suggests in Hayek's Modern Family that the prevalence of the male breadwinner contributed to the rise of the doctrine of separate spheres, the idea that men and women have different skills and temperaments and are simply not suited for the same tasks. Imagine again, someone presents you with the following idea. Men are better suited for professional and political success in the extended order, and women are better suited for success in the intimate orders of family and community. If your life experience had never or rarely suggested otherwise, what reason would you have to be suspicious of this belief? Okay, now I want to step back a bit because there's no way I'm going to be able to answer that question about how much of an impact history has on our expectations for the future or how strong those expectations will prove to be once they're challenged. Maybe you've never had a female boss, but that doesn't mean you couldn't get used to it pretty quick. So what I want to do instead of trying to resolve that problem is to conclude with two points that I think this scenario and Steve's work in general illustrate and then connect them back into the project of a classical liberal theory of the family. First, what happens in the family doesn't stay in the family. If expectations about gender roles or how to treat others or what it means to be successful are formed in any significant part by our family relationships, then family comes to matter in ways that don't have anything to do with our particular families at all. Family spills over into our interactions with the rest of the world in ways we might not even always recognize. Of course, this itself is a very Hayekian point in the sense that evolved practices often operate without direct mental effort. If you connect this to the idea of human capital development, the idea that we get better at behaviors that we practice, then the practices we habitually carry out in the home can become natural and easier to practice outside the home as well. One implication is that what happens inside the home is often underappreciated, especially by economists, for whom the household is often either ignored or treated as a whole by considering it the unit of analysis. A corollary is that history potentially has quite a long reach. If our social expectations and social skills are developed within our families, then the family is a powerful mechanism for transmitting norms. Practices that it would be difficult to explain persisting in the extended order could be preserved within these intimate relationships. This means that laws affecting family structures and relationships may be more powerful than is commonly understood. A law that dictates what a family can be has the power to change people's habits and perceptions in a persistent and personal way. Second, choice and voluntarism in family relationships are absolutely critical. Family law in American history is generally not pretty. 
Married women were not considered independent legal persons and as such could not own property, sign contracts, represent themselves in court, or do many other things that require being recognized as a person. But for me, one of the most heartbreaking features of family law in American history is that once you were in, you could not get out. Divorce was extremely difficult to get in some states all the way up until the 1960s and 1970s. Earlier in history, when marriage meant you turned everything you owned over to your husband and wage work opportunities were scarce, this meant that women in abusive, exploitative, or otherwise unhappy relationships were trapped. If the relationship was bad enough, the choice had the potential to become similar to the classic dilemma presented by the robber, your money or your life. This is a choice, but it is not freedom. One of the greatest safeguards available to us in life is our ability to exit to reasonable alternatives. As such, the classical liberal theory of the family has an important role to play in turning a critical eye on family and on the laws, policies, and cultural expectations that constrain its form. As with other social arrangements, individuals will be most likely to discover the best path forward when there is the most possibility for experimentation and adaptation. This means not dictating in advance the form that families should take and allowing people to choose how they want to constitute their family relationships. Family matters in ways that are so much more pervasive than have fully been appreciated, especially within economics, including the Austrian tradition. So thank you, Steve, for bringing this absolutely critical set of questions to the fore and for taking the first significant step to what I hope will become an important part of the way we practice social science. Well, I want to thank, first of all, I want to thank um, all the incredible folks at um, the Mercatus Center and GMU who allow me to be a part of uh, what I consider the premier program in the world uh, dealing with these uh, particular issues. And so thank you for allowing me to be here. And thanks to Steve for allowing me an opportunity to read what is a really terrifically interesting and I would say critical book uh, for the field. And the reason being, as we've heard from the previous two um, presenters, um, we don't say very much in, lib in liberal thought about the family and about the home. And at the end of the day, we hang an incredible yoke on them to carry a lot of weight with regard to responsibility in order to maintain a free society. And if we don't understand what they do and how what we're doing as a society impacts them, we are bound to mess it up. <laughs> and so I am so glad uh, that you gave me this opportunity. And uh, as I say, I think it's, uh, it's an important book, it's a, a critical area, and uh, Steve does a lot in the space he has. Um, and I commend him for that. Uh, there are things he does not do, and I think they are important. And so um, what I would like these comments to be heard in, the spirit they'd like to be heard, is um, as maybe agenda for the next book. <laughs> I think that's uh, probably it. And it's going to follow up on comments you wrote, you uh, raised, and that uh, Jamie raised as well. Um, I think there are three uh, sort of pretty critical uh, concerns uh, with the book. 
and uh, they are about what it could not do in the space as opposed to what it has done. Um, and so that's always unfair. I always hate that criticism, but I'm, you know, what are you going to do? You got to talk for 15 minutes and you want to say something <laughs> that's interesting. Why, that's, why pre that's why I preempted it. So, yeah, so we took it actually, honest to God, here it is. I marked, see, green, green, I marked the quote to read. And it's the, he, he actually used this right in his, absent from the discussion of policy is any extended look at the effects of the welfare state on the family. There are two reasons that he goes on and on and he goes, but I want to look at the long run things as opposed to the short run things. So he actually said that. And that's where I was going to start. So, wow, great minds <laughs> melding here together. But that's a problem. And it's a problem, and I understand not doing it. It is a huge literature, but it is a problem in part uh, because the calculus that he's going to use throughout to look at uh, household human capital versus market human capital and the changes in uh, women's decisions about working in the home or outside of the home and men's decisions and divorce and all of that from a public choice perspective in terms of institutional institutions and incentives is not just the market options. It's also the state options that are available to them and it never comes in. And I think it's absolutely essential that the rise of the welfare state permitted people who did not necessarily have good market options, as, as Jamie has pointed out, to choose uh, to maybe stay home, to choose to parent without a, a husband in the household, to arrange their household in a way that was not traditional or uh, conventional, all of those things, in part, are a function of the growth of the welfare state that gave a physical pot of money to people for making those decisions. And it incentivized them in particular ways. For example, AFDC in the United States, which was ADC when it was created, you could not have a man in the household until well into the 1970s. If you cannot have a man in the household, you are going to change the structure of families and that two breadwinner, etc. And so if you're going to talk about women have opportunities in the workforce and that's why they're leaving, you might also talk about, well, men were leaving for reasons that might not have had to do with the family and with these evolutionary discussions. And I think Bringing that in, and that I think would be a great second volume, uh, is to counter, here's what was happening with capitalism and growth and the, the rise of washing machines, and here's what the government was doing and policy was doing to perhaps confound that capitalistic relationship and calculus. And now we can weigh them. Where did it most affect? Where didn't it? And especially with regard to trapping particular groups who might not have had the same options that uh, Steve is noting as improving circumstances um, uh, for women and for families in that rosy view um, uh, that's laid out there. So I think that's really important to bring that in and to look at it and to balance it. Because when you're sitting in your household deciding, do we go to work, 
the fact that there may be child care provision provided by the state is changing your calculus. It's not just what you can make. And maybe that's why women are choosing particular jobs that balance against that and men are not. And why this really becomes a, a rather critical factor is it matters what kind of family you have. And that leads to my second concern about this that I, as I read just things that would, you know, oh, let's look at this question, which is exactly what you said you wanted people to do. So I'm coming up with them. I'm not sure I have enough years left in me to, to completely uh, deal with them. But here's the second one, and uh, that is the form issue. Because again, one of the, uh, I think, big conclusions of the book is over time, the form of the family has expanded our possibilities, the freedom of uh, whether it's uh, you know, single parent family, the rise of divorce, whether it's uh, gay marriage, all of those possibilities, polygamy and other things are now on the horizon and possible in a way that they never were before. And uh, that, from a liberal perspective, is, I think, a very positive thing. But it doesn't come without consequence. There are differences between those types of families in terms of the economics. And so understanding more of those differences. For example, a single-headed household with children, 39% of those households are under the poverty line in the United States. A single-headed household headed by a man with children, only 22% of those are under. So there are big, big differences, again, that come out of some of the things that uh, Jamie's talking about that make change those calculations. A second thing that these forms is, is that you might want to note is that women's attitudes on some of these things are different than men. And I would argue that one of the reasons we're seeing so much of the opening up that you note, I think very positively, especially with regard to gay marriage, is the fact that women's attitudes on these things are much more open than men traditionally have been. Uh, they're more likely to see a family as different functional forms than men have been, and so the policies that follow that then reinforce it and bring it back in. But I think it is, it is important uh, that we look at um, those different forms and how they can uh, impact. And while I was uh, thinking about this, I was looking through, and the one advantage of being old, this, like, oh, well, one of the, I said one, one of the advantage, it, it beats the alternative, there's one. Um, <laughs> And, oh, no, just, <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, we can't do that. No, that's bad. Um, uh, one of the advantages is that you actually live through a lot of these things. And so when we have this, and I especially found it charming when you said, I'm interested in these long-term things, and I'm thinking, well, a lot of what you're talking about in the book is pretty recent. And it's like in my lifetime. So I don't consider my lifetime long term, <laughs> but I guess it is now. Uh, but so while I was historically going back through and all the ways that life has treated me over my life, I came across, which if you're old, you'll, you'll understand this, and maybe others have heard about it, and you can Google it if not. And that is um, 20 years ago, 
Dan Quayle, foolishly, made the comment, took on Murphy Brown and different family forms. And so uh, 20 years later, so it's been now uh, 24 years, but 20 years later, Isabel Sawhill, and if you're not familiar with her, uh, Isabel Sawhill was for years with the Urban Institute, does social welfare policy, um, and is at Brookings, and you know, not a Bible-thumping conservative on the family, as a rule. Um, but she wrote an article in the Washington Post, and sure enough, here's the, let me read, um, okay. 20 years later, okay, here's what uh, Dan Quayle said, by the way. Um, bearing babies irresponsible, irresponsibly is simply wrong, the vice president said. Failing to support children one has fathered is wrong. We must be unequivocal about this. It doesn't help matters that when primetime TV has Murphy Brown, a character who supposedly epitomizes today's intelligent, highly paid, professional woman mocking the importance of fathers by bearing a child alone and calling it just another lifestyle choice. Which does sound a little bit like some of the changes in the form. Um, but here's the kicker, because if you went through this at the time and Isabel Sawhill and Dan Quill, they did not see eye to eye on most anything. Uh, she says, 20 years later, Quill's words seem less controversial than prophetic. The number of single parents in America has increased dramatically. The proportion of children born outside marriage has risen from roughly 30% in 92 to 41 in 2009. For women under age 30, more than half of the babies are born out of wedlock. A lifestyle once associated with poverty has become mainstream. The only group of parents for whom marriage continues to be the norm is the college educated, stay in college. Some argue that these changes are benign. Many children who in the past would have had two married parents could have two cohabiting parents instead. Why should the lack of a legal or religious tie affect anyone's well-being? She goes on to argue there's three reasons. First, marriage is a commitment that cohabitation is not, and that the uh, fragility of cohabitation is twice the rate of, of uh, marriage. Uh, second, oh, at five years. A second, a wealth of research strongly suggests that marriage is good for children. And again, Steve deals with this in his book and talks about this is hard to sort through. It's a really difficult uh, area of policy analysis. Uh, and then. A third, marriage brings economic benefits. It usually means two breadwinners or one breadwinner and a full-time stay-at-home parent with no significant childcare expenses, etc. Unlike Murphy Brown, who always had the able Eldon by her side, most women do not have the flexibility afforded a presumably highly paid um, staff member. And so she goes on to say that. Why I took the time to, to look at that is this is pretty well accepted now in the field, that it does matter. Um, and so I think you need to address the form and how that is an a, a evolution towards more progress versus perhaps a devolution, and uh, the point that I think uh, Jamie made her her comments. And then I have uh, one last um, sort of um, point, short point. Short point, try to be short. Um, and that is, 
uh, Hayek's treatment um, and your treatment of this, you, you emphasize sort of late Hayek in many ways and the sensory order. Um, and those are both, you know, those are all, everything you do with Hayek in there is, is top notch and, and spot on, uh, really well done. But I think ignoring Hayek's early warnings about the rise of the state is to miss an important part of the family policy debate. One of the things that happens as women become more a part of the political arena is they ask for more things from the state to substitute for the family structure that has changed for them because they face greater risk, as you note in your work. And as a result, this has led to a big gender gap, but it's also led to um, a, a lot more demand on the system to substitute and provide rich health care, rich child care, rich welfare benefits um, and in essence, one form you do not look at, but I would suggest incorporating in, a, in future efforts, is the form where the state has taken on the role of the parent, um, where it's, that's the spouse. Uh, because I think that is actually a prominent component of why we see these different forms take on. Hayek warns us about this. The road to serfdom is about, they will give us stuff and we will ask for more. Um, the constitution of liberty, Hayek himself argues that some level of education and welfare, et cetera, is going to be necessary. And so I think there's work in Hayek that would prove useful for trying to take some of this on. And uh, I, I, for one, can't wait to see the second book. Thank you. So I'm just take a couple quick first. Thank you both very much. And, and I, you know, uh, I don't have, you know, I'm not going to quibble much at all with, with what either of them said. Um, I just want to maybe add a few couple of quick, of quick things. I think the point about the impact of the state on family form and particularly on marriage is really important. And certainly we know, I mean, a couple of things you didn't mention that we know too, right? The war on drugs has devastated African-American men. And why do we see such high rates of single parenthood in the African-American community? Well, war on drugs has removed the marriageable men, right? And then even if they're in, they, in jail, they come out of jail, their human capital has been destroyed, right? The other thing, and, and I know, I think both of you know this, but I've raised too, is the role of tax policy, right? There's this wonderful book called Taxing Women by Ed McCaffrey, I think his name is, that looks at the history of American tax policy and the way it's been designed to actually discourage women from working, secondary earner bias and, and all this. If you don't know that book, you should read that book. It's a great little book. Uh, he's actually a, he's an economist or finance guy, um, and it's it's great. And there's all it's just a great little book that looks at the role of tax policy. So that that's another one we could throw in here too. That's affected the decisions. And when I teach this stuff, you know, I usually talk about this, and I just made this conscious decision to to leave them out. Um, let, Last two things I'll say. Uh, the story about the sort of intergenerational transmission of gender roles, I'll tell you a story. When my first kid, child was born, my son was born, my parents were, came to stay with us. And, uh, you know, it was a couple of days after we were back in the house and, and, and my, my then wife, um, uh, you know, said, said she was hungry. And I said, oh, sit, I'll, you know, I'll, get, I'll go make you a sandwich. And my mom turns to my father and says, 30 years of marriage, you never once made me a sandwich. <laughs> Right, and so, you know, right, we, we, that's the, right, I said, somehow I escaped from, 
from from that. Um, the the last thing the last thing I want oh another last thing I want to say. Let me make a pitch for another book that that does not address these particulars in any greater detail, but is a nice companion book to mine, which is Lauren Hall Lilly's book. I think it, the title is The Family and Moderation, or the word moderation is an exact title. But Lauren is a political scientist, and her book is a kind of politics of the family that it, it came out just before mine did. Um, I cite it in a couple places, but it's a very, very good book that addresses some of these similar kinds of issues, but looks at it through the lens of the history of political thought. So if you're interested in this stuff, you should read Lauren's book as well. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.